turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. This book is commonly referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, but it actually only focuses specifically on two of the Apostles. Peter is the leading figure in the first 12 chapters of the book, and then beginning in chapter 13, Paul takes over center stage. But in chapters 6 to 8, Luke diverts our attention to two very prominent individuals in the early church, Stephen and Philip. And we began to look at Stephen several weeks ago. Stephen is one of the true heroes of the Bible. He is the first Christian martyr. And all that we know about him, we learn in Acts chapters 6 and 7. And we can divide that information into three aspects. The man, the message, and the martyr. Last time we looked at Stephen, the man. And the thing that stands out about Stephen is that he was God's man. Verse 5 tells us he was full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 10 tells us that when he spoke, he spoke with the wisdom and spirit of God. And verse 15 tells us that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Like Moses, when he descended from Mount Sinai, his face radiated the glory of God. Stephen was God's man. His inner person was filled with God's presence. His words were filled with God's wisdom, and his face was filled with God's glory. This morning, we want to look at Stephen's message. And that message takes up most of Acts chapter 7. This is the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. It runs from verse 2 through verse 53. To give you an idea how long it is, it's as long as all three of Paul's sermons in Acts combined. Now often when you hear that a sermon is long, you assume that it's boring. This sermon is long, but it's anything but boring. Because Stephen had the Sanhedrin on the edge of their seats. In fact, one of the goals of a preacher is to get a response. Stephen got a response. They were so moved by his message that they stoned him to death. I told the folks in the first service not to do that to me because I had to preach to you all. You're on your own. Before we look at the details of Stephen's message, I want to give you an overview of it so that we see this long sermon in sort of a nutshell. And I would describe it using three words. Number one, recitation. Essentially, Stephen is reciting the history of the people of Israel. In verse 2, he introduces Abraham, verse 9, Joseph, verse 20, Moses, verse 45, Joshua, verse 46, David, verse 47, Solomon. He is essentially taking them through the history of their nation. And part of the reason for that is to capture their attention, because the one thing that caught the attention of a Jewish listener was the history of Israel. They loved to go back to their roots. They loved to hear it described how they were God's chosen nation. And so Stephen does that. But he does that for another reason as well, and that's the second word I would use to describe this. Not only was it a recitation, but it was also a revelation. Because he points out to them that throughout the history of Israel, the people have rejected God's chosen deliverers. They rejected Joseph sold him into captivity in Egypt. They rejected Moses. Moses had to flee for 40 years to the backside of the desert. 
When the prophets came, they rejected them. In fact, when you come to verse 52 of his message, he asked the question, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Stephen says, this sermon's getting long. I can shorten it. Instead of talking about all the prophets that your fathers persecuted, name one that they didn't. And there's no answer. So it's a recitation of the history of Israel. It's a revelation. They rejected all of God's chosen deliverers. And thirdly, it's a refutation. And this is where Stephen brings it up to the present, points his finger into their face, and applies it to them. And for that, we see it at the end of verse 51, where Stephen says, you are doing just as your fathers did. History hasn't taught you anything because you are doing the very same And so there's the overview of Stephen's sermon. Stephen says, here's the history of Israel. Whenever God sent a deliverer, they rejected him. And now you are doing the exact same thing. Now, let's see how Stephen develops that message. Now, you remember that Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin where he has been falsely accused of blasphemy. And so the message begins when in verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest turns to Stephen and says, are these things so? He's been accused of various things. The question is, are these things so? And you would expect Stephen to say, no, I didn't do it. No, I'm innocent. But what's interesting to me as we read through Stephen's message is that he doesn't really mount a defense in a technical sense. What he simply does is point the finger back at them and accuse them of the very things they're accusing him of. It's clear that his goal is not to win an acquittal. His goal is not to clear himself. His goal is simply to declare the truth. Now the simple applications or accusations made against him in chapter 6 were these four. That he blasphemed God, Moses, the law, and the temple. And Stephen uses those accusations as a general outline for his sermon. First of all, he deals with the accusation that he had blasphemed God in verses 2 to 16. Notice how he begins. And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. Now, he begins by establishing solidarity with them, calling them brothers. He also shows his respect for their authority as the Sanhedrin by calling them fathers. And then he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Now remember, Stephen has been accused of blaspheming God. So he starts out by saying, I exalt God. He is the God of glory. His sermon begins with the God of glory. It ends in verse 55 with him looking into heaven and seeing the glory of God. And throughout the sermon, his face is radiating that very glory. He is not a blasphemer of God. He exalts the God of glory. And secondly, he also shows them that he has the same God that they claim to have because he says he is the God of glory who appeared to our father, Abraham. And then he goes on to give some history. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you 
are now living. God appeared to Abraham in a heathen country, called him to leave that country, leave his relatives, come to a land that God would show him, and Abraham believed God and obeyed. Now let me add a footnote here, because some have suggested that Stephen's account of the events is not accurate. And they really point to two things that occur in these first four verses. The first one is that Stephen says in verse 2 that God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. I want you to take your Bible and go back to Genesis chapter 12 for a moment. Because Genesis chapter 12 seems to indicate that God called Abraham while he was in Haran. In Genesis chapter 11... And verse 31 we read, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. Verse 32 tells us Terah was 205 years old, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 gives God's call of Abraham. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, your relatives, your father's house, to the land I will show you. Verse 4 says, so Abraham went forth as the Lord spoke to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And so as we read this passage in Genesis chapter 12, it seems clear that God is calling Abraham while he is in Haran. Stephen says that he called him while he was in Mesopotamia. Now, how do we rectify that? Well, Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so what Stephen is telling us in Acts chapter 7 is really some details that we don't readily see when we read this in Genesis chapter 12. And that is that God called Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. He went from there 500 miles northwest to Haran where God called him a second time in Haran and he went into Canaan, the promised land. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 11, this is actually implied here because in verse 31 it says, they left Ur of the Chaldees, notice, in order to enter the land of Canaan. Now why did they leave Ur of the Chaldees intending to go to the land of Canaan if God didn't call Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees in order to go there. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 7, we read this, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. Coming back to Acts chapter 7, there's also another issue that comes up in verse 4. And that is, Stephen says that Abraham left Haran after his father died. See that phrase? Come back to Genesis chapter 12 for a moment. Because in chapter 11, verse 26, we read, And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Verse 32 says, And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And chapter 12, verse 4 says, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Terah was 70 when he gave birth to Abraham. Abraham was 75 when he left Haran. That would make Terah 145 years old when Abraham left Haran. 
But this verse, chapter 11, verse 32, tells us he was 205. So if we do our math right, that tells us that Terah lived another 60 years after Abraham left. But Stephen says he didn't leave until Terah died. How do we put that together? Well, look again at chapter 11 of Genesis and verse 26. Because the assumption here is that Abraham is the oldest child. But if you notice the verse, it says, And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. As we read the text in Genesis, it seems clear that Haran was actually older than Abraham. Because he was the father of Lot. And he died in Ur before they ever came out of that city. It also seems clear that Nahor was older than Abraham, in fact, much older than Abraham, because actually his granddaughter was Rebekah, who married Abraham's son, Isaac. And so what you have here in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 26 is not an order according to the oldest son. What you have here is an order according to the most significant son. Abraham is named first because he is the most significant, being the father of the nation of Israel. Now, come back to Acts chapter 7. Stephen goes on with the history, and what he really paints for us about Abraham really is his faith. Verse 5, And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. God's promise to Abraham was, you'll have the land as a possession, and I'll give it to your offspring as well. And God made that promise to Abraham when Abraham didn't own a foot of the ground. And when Abraham didn't have one single offspring. And so his point is that Abraham had to believe God because God didn't give it to him up front. God made him a promise that seemed remarkable. And to add to his faith or to test his faith, he goes on to say in verse 6, But God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. He says to Abraham, I'm going to give you the land, even though you don't own a foot of it. I'm going to give you offspring, even though you don't have a child. And guess what? I'm going to take your offspring, and I'm going to take them into a foreign land for 400 years before they actually possess the land. And so he's stretching the faith of Abraham, and yet Abraham believed God. And verse 8 tells us, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. God gave him the sign of that covenant, which was circumcision, and God fulfilled his promise because it says, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And now Stephen brings us to the era of the patriarchs. And his audience on this occasion would be real excited about this because these were the 12 men that they probably held as high as anybody else, the 12 patriarchs. And they're probably saying, yeah. But notice what Stephen highlights, verse 9. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him to Egypt. He takes them down to the patriarchs and what does he say about them? They took God's chosen one, Joseph, and they sold him into Egypt. In contrast, verse 9 says, And yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, 
king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. They were jealous. God granted him favor. They sold him. God rescued him. They made him a slave in Egypt. God made him governor. God worked through all of their wicked actions to turn them into and then he gives the familiar count, beginning in verse 11. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons when the children of Israel had no food, they had to come to Joseph in Egypt to receive it. And you see what he's saying here is that the deliverer that they rejected, the one that they rejected later became their deliverer. And that's the same thing that happened to the Lord Jesus. The one that they, the one that they rejected, God raised up to be What's interesting here is that he even points out in verses 12 and 13 that Joseph didn't reveal himself until the second visit. And that's also true of the people of Israel. They didn't recognize the Lord Jesus the first time. They will recognize him the second time. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, we have his words when he says, They will look on me whom they have pierced. Now let me stop right there and add another footnote because there are a couple other discrepancies that show up in this passage. Uh, One is in verse 14, where Stephen says that 75 persons went down to Egypt. Uh, If you look up that account in the Old Testament, Genesis 46, 27 says that 70 people went down to Egypt. So again, we have the issue of whether Stephen is wrong. Stephen is not wrong. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew which means that he used the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if you go to the Septuagint, it gives the number 75. It's based on the fact that they added into the count the number of Joseph's children that were born in Egypt. So again, Stephen is accurate. There's a second issue that comes up, and that's in verses 15 and 16. It says, And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there passed away he and our fathers... And from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hammer in Shechem. Now, on the first reading of this, it it seems to say that Jacob was buried in Shechem. But if you go back to Genesis 50 and verse 13, it tells us that Jacob was buried in Abraham's burial plot in Machpelah. We resolve that very simply by looking at the pronoun in verse 16 when it says they, the antecedent of they, is not he and our fathers, it's simply our fathers. He's not talking about Jacob, he's talking about Joseph and his brothers. And we know from Joshua 24, 32 that Joseph was buried in Shechem. We learn here from Stephen that his brothers were buried there as well. But there's another issue here. And I want to resolve all these because I don't want to just skim over these. Stephen says that Abraham bought the plot at Shechem. But if you go back to Joshua 24, 32, it says there that Jacob bought the plot at Shechem. 
So again, we have an issue here where people want to say that Stephen was wrong. Let me suggest two explanations for that. Number one, it's possible that Abraham may have made the original purchase at Shechem. In fact, when Abraham first came to the land, the first place that he came to was Shechem. We're told there that he built an altar to the Lord. It's very possible that he bought that little piece of ground to build that altar. He left there, which means that the land eventually fell back into the hands of the sons of Hammer, and Jacob later had to repurchase it. Let me suggest a second explanation, and that is that, T- that Stephen is really telescoping the accounts of Abraham's purchase of the land at Machpelah and Jacob's acquisition of the Shechem site. That would be consistent with what he did back in verse 2, where he really telescoped the two callings of Abraham into one state. Either way you take it, those are plausible explanations. You say, well, why does, why does Stephen even mention the burial site at Shechem? You know, the only reason I can figure that he even brought this up was to bring a little dig to the Jewish leaders. Because they were very hung up on the place where they worshipped God. They were in Jerusalem, they were in the temple, they were very hung up on the place. And throughout this message, Stephen seems to be doing all that he can to remind them that God operated in other places. Because he says, the God of glory appeared to Abraham where? in Mesopotamia, a heathen land. He tells them that God delivered the children of Israel where? In Egypt, a heathen land. And now he tells them that their fathers, the children of Israel, the ones that they revere so much, are buried in Shechem. You know where Shechem was? Right in the middle of Samaria, the land that they hated And so Stephen says, you're accusing me of blaspheming God. I'm not blaspheming God. He is the God of glory. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the sovereign God who predicted ahead of time that his people would be 400 years in Egypt and brought them out of there despite the fact that your fathers rejected Joseph. Which brings us to a second point, and that revolves around the accusation that he was blaspheming Moses. And that we see in verses 17 to 43. Notice verse 17. But at the time of the but at the time of the promise, but as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham. Now, that promise was the promise he stated in verses 6 and 7, that God would take them into Egypt for 400 years. He would then bring them back. As the time of that promise was approaching, we're told. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. The fact that they were related to Joseph meant a lot early on when his memory was still fresh because that allowed the people to multiply there. Now a king arises in Egypt who doesn't know about Joseph. All he knows is that there are too many Israelites. So verse 19 It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. That's a reference to Exodus 1.22 where all the male babies were thrown into the Nile River. Verse 20, And it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's house. Stephen is accused of blaspheming Moses. What does he say about Moses? He says Moses was lovely in the sight of God. 
in the Bible that God says is beautiful. And that was Moses. He said it here. He also said it in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23. Every mother thinks their baby is beautiful. Here's one that really was. And I think that this baby was not only beautiful in the sight of God, I think God made Moses a beautiful baby. And the reason I say that is because he had to be attractive not only to God, but to Pharaoh's daughter. Because verse 21 says, And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Now, if she had had walked up on Moses in the Nile River and he was ugly, she would have said, well, throw him to the crocodiles. But he was beautiful, and she took him home and raised him. Verse 22, and Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. And sometimes I find Christians are afraid of education. The individual God used most in the Old Testament was who? Moses. Who was the most educated man in the Old Testament? Moses. Who did God use most in the New Testament? Paul. Who was the most educated man in the New Testament? Paul. Did they have a Christian education? A godly education? They had a secular education. Now, God didn't need their education. In fact, he had to take Moses to a a different school on the backside of the desert for 40 years. But when those individuals surrendered themselves and their education to God, God used it. And here we have Moses. He was educated in the schools of Egypt. He was a man of power in his words. And then we see in verse 23... But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Moses had been raised by the Egyptians, but he had also been influenced by a godly Jewish mother. And he knew where his roots were. And so he goes on this occasion to his people Israel, only he's not, in his mind, paying a social visit. He is coming as their deliverer. And he shows his commitment to them by actually slaying an Egyptian. But it says at the end of verse 25, but they did not understand. They rejected him as their deliverer. Verse 26 And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. They rejected Moses as their deliverer. Exodus chapter 2 tells us Pharaoh went after him to kill him and he fled to Midian. Verse 30, And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush, which was the presence of God. And when Moses saw it, he began to marvel at the sight as he was, appro- as, 
And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here is God coming back, the God of the covenant, remaining faithful to the promise that he made so long ago. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And again, here's a little dig at the Jewish leaders. Where is Moses? He's out on the backside of the desert in the heathen country of Midian. And God says to him, the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Why? Because God was there. Verse 34. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and I have come down to deliver them. Now come now and I will send you to Egypt. Israel was unfaithful, but God remained faithful. And then notice verse 35 because this is a key. Stephen says, This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer the help of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. The same one that Israel disowned, God raised up to be their deliverer. That was true of Joseph, it was true of Moses, and it was true of Jesus. Verse 36, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Now it's subtle here, but he's also reminding them that Moses performed miracles in Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. And he also spent 40 years in the wilderness. Why? Because they disobeyed. They saw the miracles, but they didn't follow Moses. And so they spent another 40 years wandering in the desert. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your Moses made that prediction in Deuteronomy 18.15, and they were familiar with that. Remember when John the Baptist came on the scene in John chapter 1? We're told that Levites and priests came from Jerusalem to John the Baptist, and they said, Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And they said, Are you the prophet? What prophet? The prophet Moses predicted would come in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And John the Baptist said, No. And they said, Well, then who are you? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I am not him. I am preparing the way for him. And in John chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000, we're told that the people understood who he was because they said in verse 14, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Moses predicted he would come. He came in Jesus. And they should have recognized him. So Stephen says, you're accusing me of blaspheming Moses. I'm not the one who rejected Moses. Your father's rejected him, and you're rejecting him as well because you're not accepting the one that he predicted would come. Which brings us to the third accusation, and that is that he blasphemed the law. And for that, we look at verses 38 to 43. Verse 38 says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. 
Moses went up on the mountain, what did he get? Stephen says he got living oracles. That's a reference to the law. The law is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, just as all of Scripture is. And so the accusation against Stephen was that he spoke against the law, but Stephen, in response to that, establishes his belief in the law. He tells us that God is its author, angels were its mediator, and Moses was its recipient. And essentially he says to them, I don't have a problem with the law. Instead, the ones who have a problem with the law, he says in verse 39, and our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Their fathers, that these Jews revered so much, disobeyed the law. In fact, if you'll notice what he says here, he doesn't just say they were not obedient. He says they were not willing to be obedient. They didn't even want to obey the law. Instead, they rejected Moses and they went back to Egypt in their hearts. What's that mean? Well, it means they went back to the idols that they had been introduced to in Egypt. And that's clear when we come to verse 40, because he says, They said to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us, for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what happened to him. And at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. That's a quote from Exodus chapter 32. While Moses was up on the mountain getting the law, they were down in the valley breaking the first two commandments. They made an image of a calf, and they bowed down and worshipped it. And so verse 42 says, But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. God just said, If you want to go after idols, fine. I'll give you up to idolatry. And then to support that, Stephen quotes from Amos chapter 5 and verse 42. It is not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampa, the images which you made to worship them. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. When Israel was in the wilderness offering sacrifices regularly to the Lord, the Lord says, you weren't really worshiping me. Who were they worshiping? They were worshiping the idols that they had brought along with them. That's a sad commentary on what was happening in the wilderness It was really the same thing that happened throughout the history of Israel. They worshiped God with the ritual, but their hearts were back in Egypt. And so Stephen puts his finger on that. And he says at the end of verse 43, God says, I will remove you beyond Babylon. They worshiped idols in the wilderness. They brought those same idols back to the land. They served those idols throughout the time in the land. And it wasn't until God took them away to Babylon that he finally broke that that addiction to idolatry among the people of Israel. And so Stephen says, you're accusing me of rejecting the law. I'm not the one who rejected the law. The children of Israel rejected it from day one. Which brings us to the fourth accusation, that is that he blasphemes the temple. And that's in verses 44 to 50. Notice, He says in verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Now, they're accusing Stephen of blaspheming the temple. Stephen says, taking them back to the tabernacle, God designed it and Moses built it according to the very pattern he got from God. 
verse 45, and having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. They, they served in the tabernacle in the wilderness. They brought it into the land. It stayed with them until the time of David, verse 46. And David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. David asked permission to build a permanent place for God. Of course, God said no to David, but he did say yes to Solomon, verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for me. And so Stephen is tracing the history of the temple all the way to Solomon's temple. And then having said that, verse 48, he says, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. You've got this temple. God okayed it. God, God established its being built. But God doesn't dwell in houses. Solomon understood that. When Solomon dedicated the temple back in 1 Kings chapter 8, he said this, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. God can't even be kept in the heavens. How much can we, more can we put him in a little house and keep him there? And so Stephen, who's being accused of blaspheming the temple, is essentially saying, you're really the ones who are blaspheming temple because the temple is designed simply to be a symbol of God's presence you have made it a prison of God's presence you are saying that God is contained in this building and of course Stephen has been stepping all over that in his message he said the God of glory appeared to Abraham way off in Mesopotamia he said that Moses had to take off his sandals out in the desert because it was holy ground because God was there he says that Moses went up on the mountain and got the law and he came down with his face shining because he had seen the glory of God. None of that happened in the temple. And so his point is, yes, God established the temple, but God doesn't have to meet with people there. In fact, you know, it's interesting. He quotes here from Isaiah 66 in verse 49. He says, heaven is my throne. Earth is a footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And again, saying that God cannot be contained in a house. You know what the very next phrase says in Isaiah 66? If Stephen had gone on quoting, this is what he would have quoted. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles you will not find God in a place. You will find God in a heart that is humble and broken and willing to obey. That's the promise in Isaiah 66. Well, there's the body of Stephen's sermon. He has dealt with the four accusations against him. And now he comes to the application in verses 51 to 53, and it's really very simple. He says in verse 51, you men are stiff-necked. That's the very phrase God used in Exodus 32 when they built the golden calf to describe the children of Israel. You are stiff-necked. That was a, a phrase that pictured somebody who would not bow. He's just got his head up and he's not going to bow. He's not going to yield. He's not going to humble himself. Stephen says, you're stiff-necked. And then he goes on to say, you are also uncircumcised in heart 
Yes, you've got the ritual of circumcision externally, but you don't have the reality. You have not been circumcised in heart. Your ears are not circumcised so that you hear the voice of God. You are resisting the Holy Spirit. And so essentially he's saying to these ones who prided themselves in circumcision, you are as unclean as the uncircumcised Gentiles in your heart. And then sounding like a prophet of old, he says at the end of verse 51, you are doing just as your fathers did. You haven't learned anything from their mistakes. You're doing the very same thing. Verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? No answer, because they persecuted them all. And then he says, and they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. Stephen is saying, you are actually worse than your fathers. Because they killed those who announced the righteous one, you have killed the righteous one. Well, it's interesting to to trace your way through Stephen's message because he starts out at the beginning very fraternal. He calls them brothers. He talks about them being fathers. Uh, In fact, he talks in verse 2 about our father Abraham. In verse 11, he says, our fathers. Verse 12, our fathers. Verse 15, our fathers. Verse 19, our fathers. Verse 39, they're our fathers. Verse 44, they're our fathers. Verse 45, they're our fathers. But when he gets to verse 51, he has stepped aside. Because if you notice the pronouns used beginning in verse 51, he says, you men and your fathers. It is now they and you. And Stephen has moved aside from them, and now no longer is Stephen on trial. They are on trial. And as we'll see next week, they don't handle criticism very well. Or to put it another way, they don't handle truth very well. There are two things you can do with God's truth. You can let it kill you, or you can seek to kill it. You can't kill God's truth, but you can kill God's messenger. And that's what they did on this occasion. Proving that Stephen was right when he said that you're just like the fathers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that, although long, contains so many valuable truths. Father, I pray that we might truly grasp it as a whole today and see the power of this message as it came from the lips of your servant, Stephen. And Father, I pray that we might be challenged to be as bold, to speak your truth regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the cost. And Father, I pray too that we might take to heart the message that's given here, and that is that you don't stand for hypocrisy. That those who claim to know you claim to be your people need to have reality, need to have hearts and ears that are changed. Hearts and ears that respond in a willing obedience to you. Father, I pray that that might be our challenge today, to go from here not only to bear the name of your people, but to reflect your likeness. We pray in Jesus' name.